0: While well, the world is looking for hope, it's desperate for hope. But, you know, what's interesting is it doesn't always look that way because if you look around, what a lot of times what you see is, hey, this is all we have. This is the moment we have. So let's capture that moment. Let's live in what we have and what we know. But I think behind all of the messages of, man, this is all we have, this is what we know, live for the moment, I think is actually a cry for, is there more? Is there more? Is there really anything to hope in beyond the now? And we believe very strongly, of course, that there is And our passage today speaks to that very clearly. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. The verses will be up on the screen, but we'll be flipping around to other places, so I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open before you. There's some on the back table back there, or open it up in an app. And then I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word. Thank you so much. And then after I'm done reading, I'll, I'll say, this is God's word, and you respond with thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves." We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Be to God. Please be seated. So our passage this week continues and concludes a brief word of warning and encouragement that we've looked at over the past three weeks. The majority of this particular epistle, Hebrews, is taken up with an argument or a case that Christ is the superior high priest and how we are to respond to him. But then in uh, in chapter 5, that's where that begins. But then, really quickly, in verse 11, there's a break where the writer of Hebrews uh, gives a strong warning. Gives a strong uh, warning to his readers to not just be mere professors of their faith. You might think of Jesus' parable of the four soils, right? And the, the seeds fall on four different types of soils. What's well, only the soil at the end that actually produces fruit? Be that type of Christian because that is the only true type of Christian. So the author gives the strong and serious warning. And then last week, the author begins to, I guess, relieve some of that strong warning um, by encouraging his uh, recipients with the fact that there is fruit in their life, that their ministry gives evidence of God's grace in their life, and they should be encouraged, and they should persevere in their faith, just as uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ have done and inherited God's promises. Well, that brings us to today. Today's passage continues where we left off last week in terms of this encouragement, right, to persevere because God's promises to us in His covenant are certain. They're certain. We have a hope that is unassailable, impregnable, and absolute all because of who God is and what Christ has done for us. Our passage uh, serves in this way to bring that encouragement, and then it also serves as a bit of an on-ramp. We've been on this kind of brief uh, road. We were on the interstate of Jesus' high priestly office, and then we got off and talked about this warning and now this encouragement. And then as you see at the end of our passage, we're kind of getting back on this ramp as we talk about this um, interesting character of Melchizedek, and uh, all about him in the coming weeks. God's promises to us are certain. And the recipients of this letter need to hear this. I don't know if you remember when we first introduced this letter, we talked about how the, the, the recipients of this letter are going through persecution. There are warnings throughout it to, to not fall away, Right? Don't neglect the gathering together of the church. This is a serious, uh, dangerous practice that is happening and most likely related to the persecution that they're facing. And so they need this warning that they've been given, they need this encouragement that's been given. And so do we. So do we. Now, you may, ask, you may be thinking, and you may be asked the question, well, I'm not quite experiencing the same persecution that the people in this letter are receiving. I'm not living in, you know, the first century in this way. How is this warning and encouragement relevant to me? Well, I found this quote to be so helpful to me um, because I think it, it points to uh, the danger. And for the same reason... We need a warning and encouragement. So Puritan Thomas Brooks says, where 1,000 are destroyed by the world's frowns, 10,000 are destroyed by the world's smiles. The world, siren-like, sings us and sinks us. See, that sounds familiar. Yes, I've used that quote before. The danger to your faith, friend, might not come in your troubles. The danger to your faith might come in the lack thereof. Because the world, sin, and the devil all conspire together to convince you, to tempt you, to make you believe that this world is your true home. And that the Savior that you really need isn't found in Jesus, it's found in someone or something else. To drift to the winds of the world our sure destruction. Rather, we should place the anchor of our life on the rock of Jesus Christ and his promises, for they are certain, they are our true hope. So what I want to do is we think about the certainty of God's hope, as so I want us to see three things. And the first one is the example of Abraham. So again, look at verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham is given to us as an example that we should imitate. If you look back at verse 12, there's an exhortation to imitate those who have gone before us. And so God makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham is faithful to wait patiently God to fulfill that promise. Now, Abraham is a key figure if you think of redemption history, right? The the, the clearest, earliest covenant promise is given to Abraham, and I want to make sure I clarify that in terms of clearest, okay? So, Genesis chapter 12, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. Let me read that for you. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth and in you, all the families of the earth shall be Bless. Now, in our passage, when it's quoted here, surely I will bless and multiply you, that actually comes from Genesis chapter 22. So flip over to that Genesis chapter 22, because that is the story and the account where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham follows all the way through to that call up to the point where God says, stop. Stop. And then Abraham does stop, and then God then gives these words to uh, Abraham. Verse 15 of chapter 22, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 'By By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, before we, we talk more about this promise to Abraham and how it relates to us, the church, notice the example displayed to us, right? It's the patience. Of Abraham, who waited decades, right, for the truly promised child. And then he's asked to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, the only real certainty that he has at that point that God is going to fulfill his promise to him, right? A massive test of his faith. And Abraham chooses loyalty to God God spares the life of Isaac, and so God is faithful to his promise, even when, in that account, it doesn't seem to make sense. God is still faithful. Now, Abraham's going to be mentioned several times in chapter 7, and then in chapter 11, Abraham is given as an example to follow an example of faithfulness, right? We were surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and Abraham is mentioned specifically. And so, I think that's what's happening right here. Abraham is an example of God's faithfulness to His promise. Though he waited, he eventually received the promise. And so, though the audience of the Book of Hebrews is undergoing these trials, right? They can wait patiently for God's promise. Because like Abraham, God will fulfill his promise. Now, that's easy to say, right? Easy to talk about patience. Very hard to live out. <laughs> Maybe especially in the world in which we live in today, which everything comes to us almost instantly, right? We can get so much so quickly. The only thing we want to have slow is our vacations, right? Right? Everything else we want quickly, but consider a beautiful tree in a front yard, right? That takes time, doesn't it? You have to wait patiently for that tree to grow, years. As I thought about this, I thought about the fact that we have a machine in our house that makes food quickly called an Instapot, if you have one. God doesn't make Instapot children. He makes river trees. It takes time for trees to grow. Why would God make Abraham wait? What purpose does it serve? Well, clearly, to show that God will fulfill his promise in his time. We see that for sure. But there's something else we should see, and it shouldn't be surprising because it's all through his word right? God is interested in my character and in my heart way more than I fully comprehend. I make plans for my life. I make plans for my family. I seek the Lord for these things. I want to make decisions that glorify God. I think many of you do as well. We should always remember this, even as we make decisions and plans and things of that nature. Romans 8 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is making a family that looks like the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head. And we are the children of God. And God uses waiting to grow us more like Jesus. I think it's Thomas Watson who said that a Christian without patience is like a soldier without arms. It's who we are. And I wonder how Abraham might have responded to the call to sacrifice Isaac if Isaac had been born nine months after God first gave Abraham the promise? Can't say. We know that when God called him to go to a new land, he went. But perhaps the waiting for the promised child grew his faith and trust in such a way that when God tested Abraham in this most difficult call, he was faithful. It may seem that God's promises are not going to come. But like Abraham waited, we can too. Wait patiently for God's promises. For though his timing is not ours, he will be faithful to what he has promised to us, church. Notice secondly, we see about the certainty of God's promise. The gracious assurance of God's oath. There's no greater stability for the believer than God's oath-making promise, right? And this is important again because these Christians are uh, these recipients are coming off the warning that He's given in verses one through eight of chapter six. This very strong warning, and they may be feeling insecure about that because our sin is serious and God is holy. But we as believers can have assurance for the certainty of our hope in. Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 again of chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, hold fast the hope set before us. So, oaths. Oaths are legal actions taken in ancient times appealing to a higher authority, right? To, to validate the veracity of the statement, the, the commitment, right? The agreement. And we do this today, right? People go into a court and they put their hands on the Bible, Right? I think that's still done, some places. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And the whole idea there is that hopefully you're motivated by the negative consequences if you choose to lie, not only to the people there in the room, but now to God. And in our passage, this is the logic. The simple logic is that there's a difference between when men make oaths, they swear to God, and when God makes an oath, he doesn't need to swear by anything higher than himself because there is nothing higher than himself, right? There's only him as the highest. And so what we see in some ways is a similar argument that's taken place in Hebrews already, which is this uh, lesser to greater argument, we've seen that a few times, but in this situation, it starts with the greater, God swearing an oath by himself, and then moving to the lesser men swearing an oath before God or some higher authority. But then it moves back again, that because God is the one making the oath, right, there is no higher certainty. We have the highest security possible. that The promise will be fulfilled since it's God making the oath. Now, the system of oath given here is for comparison, not not for showing how God intended or imitated the human legal system, right? The oaths given in human court are helpful for convincing the certainty of a promise, but how much more so, right, and how much greater the certainty by the fact that it's God who made the promise by Himself. Now, at this point, you may be saying, Jordan, why... Is God giving and adding this promise of an oath, right? Isn't his word enough? Doesn't Jesus tell his followers about making oaths? Let's actually go there, right? Matthew chapter 5, what's titled the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking. He says, again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, but think back. Why did people give oaths in the first place? We have a problem with lying. <laughs> we have an integrity problem as a human issue, right? But that's not God. What God says, He does, right? Num- n- numbers 23, right? God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and shall He not fulfill it? Right? Then why the oath? Why? give his word and his oath, these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We swore an oath to Abraham to underline his unchanging purpose. He doesn't need to give it. and He certainly didn't give it for himself nor as a practice for us to imitate, as we see Jesus talking about in Matthew, what he says will happen. I believe he does it For the same reason, I've titled this point there, the gracious assurance of God's oath. It's grace. He gives it to us not because He needs it, but because we need it. We're frail and weak, and He loves us. And He wants to give us even more assurance. He knows our struggle to trust. He knows, and he is good. This assurance of the promise reminds us of three truths about God. One we've already stated, his integrity. He's not like us. What he says will happen. He's trustworthy. He's infallible. He will not sin against us because he cannot sin himself. Even when I have the best intentions of filling up a promise for my kids, I cannot absolutely guarantee it. But He can. And why? Because He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So when He gives a promise, it will happen because He is all-powerful. Well, we've seen the example of Abraham. We've seen the gracious gracious assurance of God's hope, of God's oath, I should say. And now, thirdly, the encouragement of our sure and steadfast hope. Look at verse 18 again. And so, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see this is, this is so much of what this letter is written for. Hold on, persevere, right? Keep going. This world with devils filled, might threaten to undo us, but we will not fear, for he has willed his truth to triumph through us. Right? I hope it's not ultimately in this world. I hope it's so much greater. Now, do you know what he means when he mentions the inner curtain? Do you know what he's talking about? Well, Jesus is our high priest, He doesn't just do something for us, though he does do that. He also calls us to something, to follow him into greater intimacy and communion with God, what God created us for. I mean, just think of the way of how one used to approach God In the Old Testament, right? To go into the tabernacle and then to go into the Holy of Holies. One person, one time a year would go into the Holy of Holies, right? And before he did that, he would take ritual baths, right? He put on special clothes. They would make multiple animal sacrifices. And then he would go in and he would wear bells on his robe and they'd put a rope around him. Because if those bells stop, they could pull him out. This is our holy God. And perhaps you know that when Jesus died on the cross at that moment, the temple curtain between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies was split in two, signifying and certifying. The fact that we are no longer separated from God's presence in that way. Amen? He's made a way for us to receive the blessing long ago promised to Abraham. And notice the imagery the author of Hebrews uses here. He wants us to have this imagination idea in us with this idea of the anchor. Right? Right? You know what he's talking about when he talks about anchor, right? That's a boat that has this tool that drops down into the water. And the meaning here is, is, is identical to what it's used for now, really, right? And what happens? You drop it down, and then it hits the bottom, whether that's mud or sand or rock. But it has a specific design. It has, it has hooks on it in some form or fashion. And there's a variety of different anchors out there now. But the whole point is it sits on the bottom and the boat's floating on top, and then when the wind begins to blow, right, and that cord, chain, rope becomes taut, pulls on that anchor, and that anchor then digs in to whatever is below, whether it's sand or mud or rock, and holds that boat steady. That's a picture of hope right? You can't see the anchor, but below the surface of the water, it is holding on to something strong and something steady. And that's what our hope is, in the promises of God that hold us steady in the strongest of storms. Think of political campaigns, right? They rise and fall On the strength of the hope they offer. They all do. And behind the promise made is the candidate himself or herself, right? Our hope ultimately rests not in a thing, a circumstance, an experience, but in a person the person of Jesus Christ. How can we have strong encouragement? Because Jesus, our high priest, that's how, right? The one who is better than Moses, the one who is better than angels, the resurrected Lord, right? He is our sure and steady hope. We sing about this, right? How firm a foundation, amen? Well, Jordan, what is the promise? I said that the act of promising by God assumes three truths about him. And I intentionally only gave you two. Because there's a third truth. And that's this. Well, his integrity, his omnipotence, and then thirdly, his eternality. He's forever. See, God's promises don't expire because he doesn't expire. He's forever. Why is that important? Again, yeah. because his promises will never end. Never end. And what is the promise? Well, it's the same as Abraham's, right? Or should I say it includes us in the same promise of blessing, right? Well, what is it? Well, it's ultimately spelled out in the New Testament, You can look at Ephesians 1, all the spiritual blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. And the most wonderful of all is that we would be with him forever, that he would be ours and we would be his, right? This is Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself would be with them as their God. It's redemption. As J.R. Miller says, it's the world's greatest blessing. The sum and substance of so many of the songs we sing. Hebrews chapter 11. Just flip over there real fast. Because in verse 13, we read this. It's a reminder to us. Of those who've gone before us. Those who come after us and for us now, this is the same thing. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And our sin is so much worse than we think. But our hope is so much better and greater than we could ever dream. And it's a certain hope. John Newton says, Even the appearance of an angel from heaven could add nothing to the certainty of the declarations he has already put into our hands. Yours. Persevere. Persevere. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we are reminded again today of the fact that, first off, this book of Hebrews is so... Uh, powerful to remind us of how great we need to consider our sin. But also, Lord, how wonderful is our hope and how certain it is. And Lord, I don't. you know all those who are here, Lord God, and those who wait and have been waiting. You know how quickly I want things done how soon I want something to just happen. And you have a plan, Lord, a a good plan. And you call us to wait. And you call us to hope. And what a great hope we have. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. Father, for your sovereign plan Spirit, work in us so that we might trust you in even greater ways. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.